welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Thursday, May 23rd, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Gillibrand introduces a family bill of rights, two candidates are now accepting cryptocurrency donations, how Buttigieg's comments on Jefferson and Jackson have played in the media, and Nevada is poised to join states in sidestepping the Electoral College. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Yesterday on Medium, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand introduced a major set of new policies. Her post is titled, The Family Bill of Rights, a new economic policy for my first 100 days in office. And the subhead reads, quote, We must ease the financial burden on families and help level the playing field for children, no matter who they are or where they live. End quote. In the second paragraph, Gillibrand gets right to it. Quote, The resources and care available at the start of a child's life have a crucial impact on their health, safety, development, and future success. But not every child starts on equal footing. Families and kids face huge disparities in opportunity and resources depending on their income and zip code, and the gap is wider for families of color. That isn't fair, and it isn't acceptable. End quote. So, she proposes a Family Bill of Rights, a five-point plan that includes a variety of policy proposals under each point. The five key points are, one, the right to a safe and healthy pregnancy, two, the right to give birth or adopt a child regardless of income or sexual orientation, three, the right to a safe and affordable nursery, four, the right to personally care for your loved ones while still getting paid, including care for your child in its infancy, and five, the right to affordable childcare and early education before kindergarten is available publicly. Okay, so let's dig into some of the specific points that Gillibrand puts under each heading. For her first point, the right to a safe and healthy pregnancy, the key issue there is that the U.S. has a very high rate of pregnancy-related deaths, and that rate is three to four times worse for black women than white women. Reading from that section, quote, My plan will be modeled off of former Senator Heidi Heitkamp's legislation to study maternal health data from rural communities, develop better training for rural health facilities, and fix the shortage by making it easier and cheaper to train new OBGYNs, end quote. By the way, on a meta level, I think this is really smart policy. If somebody else already has a proposal to do the thing you want to do, you should just say so. And I give Gillibrand major points here for just saying, hey, take the height camp legislation and do it. We don't need to keep reinventing the wheel when we already have piles of new designs lying around. Okay, Gillibrand's second point gets at barriers to conception and adoption. And it also points out immediately that, quote, there are more than 400,000 children in the foster care system with over 120,000 waiting for a permanent family, end quote. So basically here, she is proposing three things. First, abolishing adoption restrictions based on gender or sexual orientation of parents. Second, requiring health insurance companies to cover in vitro fertilization treatments. And third, tax credits for parents who adopt children. All right, the third major point has to do with nursery care in people's homes. This is obviously a challenge if you have ever been a new parent yourself or have been around anybody who has. There's all this stuff people tell you to buy, and it's unclear what's necessary and what's optional and what's even safe and how to pay for it. So Gillibrand proposes something called a baby bundle. 
which would be provided to all new parents regardless of income. Quote, these bundles will be filled with the most important items for a child's first month at home, like diapers, swaddle blankets, and onesies, all in a box with a small mattress that can be repurposed as a nursery bed. End quote. So we're not talking about giving money to the giant stroller industrial complex here, but, you know, the basics. Sometimes basic care can have tremendous results. The fourth point is about paid family medical leave. Now, many of us approach this issue from different angles at different times in our lives. Maybe you're caring for your new baby, or your injured spouse, or your aging parent. These are all areas that would fit into a new program Gillibrand proposes in which a national insurance program would pay for this time away from work. She also proposes making CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program, universal. The idea is every newborn infant would automatically be enrolled unless the parents opt out. That gives every baby basic health care and every parent an opportunity to care for those babies. And the final point is about early education. Gillibrand brings up two key proposals here. One is universal pre-K, and the other is expanding, quote, the child and dependent care tax credit so that families can afford safe, high-quality child care, end quote. Gillibrand begins her conclusion by writing, quote, I'm committed to enacting this Family Bill of Rights in my first 100 days as president because at its core, this is an economic issue, end quote. She proceeds to explain that many parents or would-be parents that she meets on the campaign trail face limited options for parenthood because of money. And as always, I ask, okay, how much will this policy cost and how will Gillibrand pay for it? Now, I didn't see an explicit cost number listed in the Medium post, and that is something I'm super curious about due to, for example, the cost of IVF treatment. That is quite an expensive thing, and if we add that to all insurance, I don't know what that would cost. But Gillibrand does include this note on funding. Quote, We'll pay for it with a financial transaction tax, which would raise over $777 billion in the next decade. End quote. So, as long as the total cost of this plan is under three quarters of a trillion bucks, the math should work out. And finally, reading from a Politico analysis of the proposal, quote, Elements of Gillibrand's plan overlap with proposals from other 2020 presidential contenders. Much of the Democratic field supports a national paid family leave program, as well as universal pre-kindergarten. Senator Elizabeth Warren proposed a universal child care program paid for by a new tax on multimillionaires. Julian Castro also called for universal pre-kindergarten in his education plan after he championed universal pre-K in San Antonio when he was mayor. End quote. Here's a quick item on campaign donations. Normally, when we talk about donating money to candidates, it's in the form of, you know, money, like U.S. dollars. But there are two candidates, Andrew Yang and, as of today, Eric Swalwell, who now accept donations not just in dollars, but in cryptocurrency. That is, you know, Bitcoin and stuff. Now, I'm not going to turn this into a 10-minute segment explaining cryptocurrency. That would be a whole different podcast. But for today, let's just say it's like money, but there's no bank, and it gets technical real fast. Having said that, there are some notable political points here. First, Swalwell has already been involved in crypto-related efforts in the House, trying to clear up issues related to how the IRS taxes earnings on these kinds of assets. That is a real problem today for people who work in that space, as federal regulations simply have not kept up with the technology. 
And that work might draw those people to give money, or well, technically cryptocurrency, to Swalwell. Second, Yang was there first, at least in this race. He even has a whole policy page dedicated to cryptocurrencies and other digital assets. And Yang points out that today, different federal agencies cannot even agree on what cryptocurrencies are. And that's a real problem if you own these things and are trying to pay your taxes and follow the law. All right, third, for both candidates, actually accepting these donations is more difficult than taking U.S. dollars. You have to go to a special page, fill in your contact info, and then make your donation separately. The very definition of cryptocurrency is that every transaction is anonymous, and that directly conflicts with campaign finance law. So these candidates are left trying to match up donors with their anonymous donations using these multi-step forms. That's not always an easy process. If they get anonymous donations and they can't match them up, that is a big problem. And finally, just to be clear, these candidates are not the first to accept crypto donations. They're just the first in this primary cycle. Rand Paul famously accepted Bitcoin in 2016, and several congressional candidates, including Jared Polis and Austin Peterson, did the same even earlier. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Now, here's a story about how a candidate went on a podcast, made some nuanced points, and then those points were used out of context in the media. I'm covering the story only because it is the kind of story you need to know about. You're going to hear about it one way or another. And I figure the best way to examine it is to look at the primary sources. All right, so who's in trouble now? Well, it's Pete Buttigieg. And who is causing the trouble? Well, for now, let's limit that to The Daily Caller and Karl Rove writing for The Wall Street Journal. So here's what happened. Last week, Buttigieg went on The Hugh Hewitt Show for a half-hour interview. There's a link to that and the full transcript in the show notes. They talked about all kinds of stuff, including military service, religion, books, foreign policy, nuclear threats, high school, you name it. Eventually, Hewitt asked a direct question, quote, a very blunt question, because you talk about going to every Jefferson Jackson dinner in Indiana when you were running statewide. Should Jefferson Jackson dinners be renamed everywhere because both were holders of slaves? End quote. And Buttigieg responds directly. Now, I'm going to read a few paragraphs from the transcript here, so buckle up. Quote, Buttigieg, yeah, we're doing that in Indiana. I think it's the right thing to do. 
You know, over time, you develop and evolve on the things you choose to honor. And I think we know enough, especially Jackson, you just look at what basically amounts to genocide that happened here. Jefferson is more problematic. You know, there's a lot to, of course, admire in his thinking and his philosophy. Then again, as you plunge into his writings, especially the notes on the state of Virginia, you know that he knew that slavery was wrong. Hewitt, yes. Buttigieg, and yet he did it. Now, we are all morally conflicted human beings, and it's not like we're blotting him out of the history books or deleting him from being one of the founding fathers. But, you know, naming something after somebody confers a certain amount of honor. And at a time, I mean, the real reason I think there's a lot of pressure on this is the relationship between the past and the present. That we're finding in a million different ways that racism isn't some curiosity out of the past that we're embarrassed about but moved on from. It's alive, it's well, it's hurting people. And it's one of the main reasons to be in politics today to try to change or reverse the harms that went along with that, then we'd better look for ways to live out and honor that principle, even in a symbolic thing, end quote. And then they start talking about how much time is left for the interview, the nuclear triad, and Mike Pence, and so on. Hewitt did not continue that line of questioning. He seemed satisfied. But then the Daily Caller posted a story titled, Buttigieg Says Things Named After Thomas Jefferson Should Be Renamed. And as you just heard, that's not what he said. He didn't make a statement about renaming things that are named after Jefferson. Instead, he responded to a direct question about a specific dinner and said, yes, that should be renamed. And then, as you just heard, he explained why he thought it was a complex issue and that those founding fathers, despite being human and having moral failings, explicitly should not be erased from history. He also acknowledged that all human beings are, quote, morally conflicted, end quote. This is the definition of nuance. Okay, now, it's totally fair to say that Buttigieg in his comments suggests that when you name future things, you should probably think pretty hard about whose name you're going to choose. That is implied, not stated, but still. Also, for that one dinner, he said, yes, rename it. But this is the kind of nuance that media sometimes gets wrong. Okay, so then Hewitt came to Buttigieg's defense on Twitter, agreeing with Kelly Johnston, former Secretary of the Senate, who pointed out that the Daily Caller headline was inaccurate. Hewitt wrote, in part, quote, Too often, bits and pieces of interviews and remarks are used to hype a headline and generate clicks. I think Pete Buttigieg would stop well short of tearing down the Jefferson Memorial, end quote. And later, in that same Twitter thread, Hewitt made this excellent point, quote, It is discouraging to see people comment on public officials, left, right, and center, without giving those officials any credit for good intentions, nuance, or simply lack of time to fully present a case. It discourages liberals from talking to conservatives, and vice versa. End quote. After that exchange, the Daily Caller actually changed the headline of their story apparently multiple times. The original title, which can be seen in the link itself, was something like, Buttigieg says we should stop celebrating Jefferson. I'm not sure about the precise wording there because links leave out a few words. But anyway, the Daily Caller eventually renamed its piece to use the totally accurate title, Buttigieg says Jefferson Jackson dinners should be renamed. Cool. Great. 
So this is a case where one media outlet, the Daily Caller, took comments out of context and then ran with them. And then another media figure, Hugh Hewitt, called them out and they changed the headline. So good job. But then yesterday, Karl Rove picked up the original misinterpretation again in a new opinion piece for the Wall Street Journal. In it, Rove makes a slippery slope argument that goes way beyond what was ever discussed. He writes, quote, Why stop at renaming dinners? It seems Mr. Buttigieg would also want the U.S. to rename cities, counties, streets, and colleges named for slaveholders, including Washington and Madison, as well as Jefferson. End quote. <sighs> okay, so heading toward a conclusion, here is the point. I hope that, having listened to this segment, you've heard the key facts. One, Buttigieg wants to rename a dinner. Two, he thinks people are flawed, history is nuanced, and our perceptions of honor changes over centuries. Three, some media outlets got that wrong, whether intentionally or not. And four, Hugh Hewitt did the right thing and pointed out how this media angle discourages open discussions among honest people about politics. That is the story. And that is the problem. And last up today, on Tuesday, the Nevada Senate passed a bill that could make it the 15th state to join the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. It still has to be signed by the governor, who has not indicated a clear public position yet, but we're going to know soon. Now, I have covered this compact on the show before, but it was literally on our third day, and basically no one was listening at that point, so I think it's time to revisit that issue. So here's the deal. In recent American history, multiple presidents have been elected despite losing the popular vote. The U.S. Constitution mandates how presidential elections should work via the Electoral College. Quick explanation there. Basically, you don't vote for president. You vote for one or more people that your state sends to a convention to vote for president on your behalf. The idea of the Electoral College is complex and honestly beyond the scope of this show. It has positives and negatives. But for the story today, lots of people, including tons of Democrats, would prefer to see the presidency determined by a popular vote rather than the Electoral College. In general, this would likely lead to more Democrats winning the presidency. Okay, so to get that done, you would need to amend the Constitution, which requires an affirmative vote by a two-thirds majority in both the House and the Senate, and then three-quarters of the states need to ratify it. The president, by the way, is not involved in this process. So trying to go for an amendment that would require such bipartisan support both in Congress and throughout the states, it just isn't going to happen, especially when this is seen by many as a move that is designed to benefit Democrats. Ah, but then comes the creative thinking by math people. The way the Electoral College works entails each state sending electors to a convention and telling them how to vote. Turns out each state has a lot of latitude in how it instructs those electors to vote. So the idea behind the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact is to have states individually create state-level laws telling their electoral college voters to vote in line with the popular vote, not the outcome of the state vote. That's it. Then the Constitution could remain unchanged while states simply change how they participate in that existing system. Interesting idea, right? So right now, the Electoral College has 538 voters. That means any presidential candidate needs 270 electoral votes in the general election to win. 
and each state plus DC controls some of those voters. Right now, states plus DC controlling 189 electoral college votes have signed on, and Nevada might join them soon, pushing that number to 195. When Oregon, my home state, passes that bill, which is likely quite soon, the number goes up to 202. Now, only when the total number of voters controlled by the compact states exceeds 270 does the compact actually go into effect. So, who knows if that'll ever happen, much less in this election cycle. But it is certainly a novel way for states to work around a national system. And yes, I will keep you posted if more states join. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Okay, yesterday I got an awesome voice message from Tony Jimenez of Washington State asking what happens to this show when the primaries are over. Like, does the primary ride home just turn into a pumpkin or what? Well, here's the short version. As soon as we have a candidate, this show becomes the election ride home. Now, what exactly that looks like, we're going to wait and see because honestly, there is a ton of time to think about format and which races we cover and all that stuff. But in the meantime, I am all in on primary news, and don't worry, I'm not bailing anytime soon. All right, thanks for the question, Tony, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.